everyone and welcome to Teeth and Tales. I'm your host Dr. Shadi Manicherry and today's episode is with a wonderful very well-known dentist who we all know and love as George the Dentist. In this episode George shares his experience in dentistry from going into practice ownership at a very very young age and also his recent experience with opening up not one but two squat dental practices in London one of which was done during the pandemic. George also shares what he looks for when he's recruiting associate dentists so that if you are considering getting your dream job, then he talks about some things that you should be doing in order to stand out from the crowd. So I really hope you enjoy this episode and without further ado, let's get into it. Hi George, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Finally, I think this has been in the making for two years, a year and a half. Yeah, we found found the date eventually. Eventually. Yeah. Perfect. There's so much I want to talk to you about on this episode. So without further ado, let's get into the juicy stuff of your background, you know, what you do now and how you got to where you are now. Okay. All right. Let's give a summary. So I qualified probably about, I think it's about 13 years ago now, so uh, a while ago. When I um, came out into practice, I went, like as most people do, I did my VT year, then went into predominantly NHS practice um, and one clinic where I did a day a week in private practice. But I kind of quickly realised that I needed to like further my education to become a better dentist because you know your skill set when you come out of uni you just don't really I you don't really know enough I feel so I did a lot of private courses and went on and did a master's degree in um aesthetic dentistry and since I did that master's degree I did a diploma in clear aligners and I've done a lot of uh private courses in biometric dentistry so that's the kind of academia wise that um i've gone through and i spent probably about five years in mainly nhs practice while i was doing some courses and gradually kind of you know at first i was doing like four or five days nhs and then just kind of cut it cut it cut it until i went completely private after about um five or six years and it was yeah it was probably at about five years out of uni that <clears throat> I took over my first practice um Ridgeway Dental which is in Wimbledon which was it was a very small practice it wasn't the slick practice that it is now i.e it didn't do any kind of specialist services it was just a bit of general dentistry um <clears throat> and I took that over from the previous owners with my boss from my NHS practice, Aaron. So I went into partnership with Aaron at uh, Wimbledon, which was really great for me at the time because, you know, I mean, I think I was 28 at the time, Um, you know, going into kind of management where you had no experience or any sort of uh, business experience. It was great to have him on board because he had already had practices so he could help me along along the way. Um, We then built that up so now that's a four surgery practice, which is Ramo, and we do um, all specialist services there. 
two years ago, I then opened up, I opened up a squat practice. Um, and I actually opened that up with a patient of mine. But it was a patient of mine that he had been my patient for about five years or something. <clears throat> he was in private equity. And he got to the point where he wanted to leave private equity and have his own business. So he got thinking, actually, you know, dentistry is something that seems quite good to go into. And then one thing led to another during when when all the COVID like hit the fan, uh, we got talking. And then during those stages, that's when we kind of planned things. One thing led to another. And we have uh, we've had that clinic for two years now um Fulham Road Dental that's also a specialist clinic that's five surgeries now and about three weeks ago <clears throat> we actually opened up our our second squat practice um in Wandsworth wow so that's kind of my history in a nutshell in a nutshell this you've done so much I I as in I didn't realize you were 28 when you opened up when you did the first practice because um, you know, these things are when you think about them, you're like, yeah, you know, when I'm at that age, I'll be responsible enough to do this and that. But until you're in that situation, you don't know how you're going to feel and you don't know what opportunities come along. What was it like for you? Because so early, I feel like five years out yeah. of need to open a practice um, or to take over an existing practice is a lot of pressure because you're just trying to get the hang of your dentistry, your clinical dentistry. And yeah. then just to add the business side of things can be quite difficult. Yeah, it's a really good question. And to be honest, the reason I stayed in that first, so I'd been working like a day a week in that practice in Wimbledon for a while. I didn't love working there, but the reason I stayed there was because I thought the opportunity might come about for me to be able to buy it off of mm. the owners. And mm. it was in such a nice area. That's where I went to school. It was, um, I thought that it would be a good area to basically own a clinic. So I stayed there and the point came where actually they said, look, you can, um, you, you can get it now. But if that opportunity hadn't been offered at the time, I don't think I would have actively been looking to mm. purchase a practice. Like I wasn't looking at other clinics to buy. Um, it's just that kind of came at that time that I thought it would be silly not to take the opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, and having Aaron as a practice partner was just a complete blessing because, you know, you both find your roles and, he could really kind of father me in the growth of having a practice, especially mm -hmm. in those initial phases. But yeah, it does add like a lot of headache. You know, it's a lot. Of, suddenly you've got to put your your different hats on mm -hmm. and you know, any practice owner would be telling you there's <clears throat> a huge amount of work to to cover during that time. And I keep saying on your social media, you know, suddenly you come in and there's like water leaking through the debris. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's like... <laughs> There's a lot of things out of control, but you know, when, when these things first happen, it's always a ball ache. Obviously there are loads of things that happen, but at first it tends to upset you a bit more because mm. you're like, why me? But then you just realize these things happen and you just you have to get no point whining about it. You just yeah. got to deal with it and fix it, fix the problem. Would you say there were any things at the beginning, beginning, because obviously now this is your third practice that's just open. Congratulations. I didn't realize it was already open. And is that with your partner from the second practice? Exactly. That's her mark. That's mark. Yeah. Good. Do you find that you found certain things are easier? So was there anything that at the beginning, you know, when you came across that you were like, this is the end of the world. And then now you're like, actually, it's not that bad from the business side of things staffing tended to be hard at the beginning and I would feel 
very offended when, say, if like a hygienist rang up at 8 a.m., they're like, oh, I'm sick, I can't come in. And you're like, well, you know, you've got a patient that's waiting for you at 8 a.m. Or, you know, a different staff member would ring in sick at last minute. or And you could see that they've gone like party the night before or something like that. So you kind of, everything you took as like a real offense against mm. you. Whereas now you start to realize that if you're not a practice owner, everyone sees uh, life from like kind of their point of view. And when you first started a practice, I only really saw it from the practice owner point of view. Whereas now I'm a lot better from seeing it from other people's point of views. I don't really take things uh, as like a personal offense mm. even more. Um, so that's probably something that has changed a lot as I as I go along. You get a bit. I, I guess more chilled out and not shocked about certain things. And I guess it's your point of view as well. Like if you probably look back to when you were an associate, you had different priorities and different things were important exactly. to you. Whereas now, you know, you're on the other side of it. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly. And this is why it's, uh, I think if you're going to ever own a practice, I think that you really do need to be able to see it from the other side as well and understand because and understand that people do people grow themselves so Mm -hmm. when at the beginning when people decided that they'd be leaving because they're moving or you know they're getting married or something like that people grow and people go on to other things Mm -hmm. so that's just that's what it is and now I'm actually happy for people when that happens rather than being like oh god I've got to find another orthodontist or something that's a very very mature way of looking at it one of my best friends has just bought a practice and the thing that she struggles with most I guess is the people and the staffing because you know from an outsider's point of view you might think that it's actually the business side of things it's the numbers it's the bills but actually it's that people have opinions they don't necessarily get on with each other so there's so much more that you don't have the experience until you start that managerial role yeah yeah and that's that I think that's probably the hardest thing of having a practice because it's just so incredibly time consuming when a couple of people will have like a petty little argument about an instrument that's lost or why wasn't something ordered or why isn't that lab work arrived or something like that the problems that we all face Mm. and you're like well, why are you then suddenly someone's upset, someone's crying about it. And you're like the amount of time that then it takes to hear about the problem, blah, blah, blah. You're like, that's kind of like an hour of time that you have to listen. Yeah. And you're not necessarily making progress with the situation, Yeah, uh, but you have to do it. And sometimes it's just like, well, look, let's not look at, let's just fix the problem and make sure it doesn't happen again mm-hmm. rather than kind of cry about the issue in the, in the first place. Um, but yeah, like this recruitment and staffing is the, it's, that's the the topic. Right. Everyone has different personalities and everyone has to really gel as a team and you're not always going to get it right. Like, you know, if you're growing quickly and say, you know, there's some, you know, when you have over, probably 50 staff, probably more than that, you know, everyone has their own little uh, issues or problems or, you know, so it's, 
there's a lot to deal with. But then if you have the managerial structure in place, it means that you can, um, everyone can tackle their own like problems, like good practice managers, good front of house. It's, it, you don't have to deal with it all yourself. If you get that structure in place mm-hmm. as you grow, that's an important thing to try to get right, which, you know, I haven't, I'm great where I am now. I think we're doing very well. But then suddenly when you add a fourth practice, a fifth practice, 10 practices, 15 practices, you know, you've got to really learn how that structure changes as you grow. Um, but also make sure you're doing it so you maintain quality standards yeah. as well. Yeah. Because, you know, if I can be at a practice and work there, you know, I can see what's going on a lot more than if I'm not there. And you really care about the the patients, you really care about the treatments being done, but then suddenly if you do have like 10 or 15 practices, like you can't physically be at every single site. So you need to make sure that it's, it's that that quality assurance is being there um, somehow. So how do you manage your clinical work with practice ownership? Because I feel like each and every <coughs> is a big, difficult thing to do. And, you know, your clinical work, as we all know, is sensational, is incredible. Yeah, um, so how do you how do you manage that? How do you manage to have excellent clinical skills and be able to manage all the admin side of owning a business? It's like with I don't really have much time, basically, because I. I probably on average still do five clinical days a week wow. from eight till five. Um, the What I've started to do is not book in any patients on a Wednesday. So I work Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, but then that kind of not booking people in on a Wednesday, what that ends up happening is that someone, for example, this Wednesday, I had it booked off but I ended up going in and working most of the day because some dentist actually rang me last week. He had a ski accident. So I had to fix his teeth. Another guy that was getting married in two weeks. So I had to fix his teeth. So having that one day clear is actually quite a good thing because it means that you can start to see like emergencies or the more important treatments that come at last minute. Um, But so typically I end up working Wednesdays as well, but that might not be a whole day, but a lot of the time it, ends up being so you're doing clinical work four or five days a week and all the other side of things you're just doing evenings and weekends it's kind of like it's like chipping away through the days as as, as well it's like you know while that comes it's being cured you just check the email (laughs) and it's like you're it is like it's just firing it's just you've got to be on it the whole time and my team and my practice my manager managers and my practice partners all extremely responsive mm-hmm. so we would just be like chatty quick calls throughout the days to just deal with stuff um and then yeah evenings you'll chip away at things weekend you'll chip away at things what i've actually changed this year compared to before as well is that i was doing quite a lot of teaching before this year but i kind of gave myself a new year's resolution and said look try to basically say no to more things because what ends up happening is if i if you know, King's Uni or whatever want me to do a lecture and they say, look, it's in March. Even if it's in, even if it's January still, I have to write that new lecture. And personally, I'm not very good at that because when I'm writing a lecture, I probably care too much about the content that's on there, where it's actually probably more about the delivery of it all. And that will take me like two months chipping away at it in the evening to actually write that lecture. 
And if that's always at the back of your mind, it mm-hmm. just creates so much stress in the system that now I've actually said, look, I'm going to say no to a lot of that stuff. And already I feel like I'm like, oh, my God, I feel like I've got a, a lot more time, which is uh, which is nice. So how do you deal with the stress of it all? Because I feel like we're in it, obviously, for the long game. And it's like yeah. if you're that stressed for a brief period of time, yeah um then that's one thing but having this as a career and adding on to your stresses and worries in terms of additional businesses coming through and all that how do you manage it all and how do you make sure that you're well and you know you're doing okay are you doing okay (laughs) (laughs) yeah no no I'm all I'm all good I'm like I'm very happy and I'm very positive about everything and it's just like I don't know I just always kind of think it'd be all right because it has to be all right um and Personally, I actually, as my career goes on, like, I love clinical dentistry, but I actually start to enjoy the management side a lot more as well. And I would like to see myself in the future cutting down the clinical time a bit, mm. not completely, but maybe do like two or three days and just cherry pick the work that I really want to do and then spend a bit more time uh, managing and growing the business because that's what I enjoy. Mm. And I, the thing that... I like about practice ownership is that say if I ever go away on holiday which is quite rare at the moment but hopefully it'll be more in the future I actually don't feel that guilty when I'm away because you've still got the clinics which are turning over you can still chip away at a little bit of work hit some emails have some calls and that actually makes me happy um whereas I think it's different as an associate because if you're away you're kind of thinking, well, look, I'm kind of paying for this holiday, but I'm paying for the time off exactly, as well. Yeah. And that, that's this thing that you have. And I actually, you know, I've realized that I I enjoy working and I enjoy being productive. And if I have a certain period of time where I'm not doing anything, like if I went away for like a week, two weeks, by the end, I'm kind of thinking, like, I won't really want to get back into a, a routine and start to, to work here. So I'm generally quite lucky for that. Um, the the stresses come financially because when you're growing a business like say if I was just happy with just the Wimbledon practice now that's doing well now that's doing quite well so I could just be fine with that and live a nice life but then when you add the next practice, you know, you've got to pay X amount to build that practice and you're not going to make any money for a good few years. So it's not just building the practice, but it's actually funding that for a few years every month while it's losing money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, everything that you've previously earned, you've got to put into the growth of the new practice. And then suddenly you get to a point where you're like, oh, few I can like actually pay this tax bill without worrying too much. Or, you know, I can actually... <clears throat> like pay my mortgage or whatever and then suddenly you grow again and you're like oh fuck it's like <laughs> you've got to find that money for somewhere and it'd be a, and you know you've got to be sent you've got to get a loan from somewhere or whatever and everyone when you say you've got three practices everyone automatically thinks you're a baller uh but it's kind of the opposite until you get to a point where you probably stop growing and just happy with what you uh with what you get but look I'm still I feel I'm still like relatively young like I'm coming up to 37 so I think that now is the time for me to push and grow when I can where I don't have kids in private school um so my kind of commitments at this stage in terms of like family life are are low whereas 
you know, it'd be a very different matter mm. if you if you didn't uh if, if you did have kids and that kind of thing, right? Yeah, I guess it's all about priorities and the right yeah. time. And I yeah. know I've spoken about this a few times now, <clears throat> but there's the, there's an Under Armour campaign on the underground and it says grind now, glory later. And yeah. I keep reading that and thinking, well, if you put in the hard work now that you can and you're motivated to do so, and it genuinely does bring you joy, because I'm the same. I feel like when I'm productive, I yeah. genuinely feel a sense of accomplishment that keeps me going. Right. Yeah, and yeah, I can't yeah. switch off for too long. It's nice to have breaks to kind of recharge, but yeah, I'm really the kind nice. of personality that likes to continue doing things. And that in itself keeps me going. Yeah, 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 exactly. And that's, um, it's a, it is a good trait to have. But then also, I think there is that balance as well. Like, sometimes it's like, look, we're all going to die one day. And life is a very short thing. So then at what point do you actually chill out and smell the roses and enjoy that holiday and go for a swim and actually be properly in that moment? Yeah, Uh, it's, you know, I feel that I should probably should do that more. But you know, where's that balance? It's it's a tricky area to, to get to. And it constantly to. changes. You know, for example, if you've just opened up two new practices, maybe you don't have time for holidays, but maybe in a couple of years or some months, you might set that time aside. Yeah. So yeah. going to your sec- so going to your other practices, what what made you decide? I know you said you went on this venture with uh, one of your patients. Yeah. But what made you decide to do it? at COVID times because that was a time where everything was uncertain you know nobody knew what was going on and when it would change and it was it was a crazy time to, yeah, to go on yeah. a new venture it was it was um you know what it was it's just that the opportunity with Mark came up because Mark I I found that I always got on with him for the most the reason I met Mark was because he came in it was like it was years ago and it was like a Friday afternoon and it was like at four 30 and this guy like came in the practice is like, I have just a horrendous toothache. I can't get an appointment somewhere. Could you help me out? So I like, access this tooth and nurse stayed very kindly. And so, and then, but then since then we just, we came, we always just got on very well in the, the dental chair. Right. And then there was a point like it was, it was a few years in or just before the whole COVID thing. He was like, let me take your number, George, because, you know, let's have a chat at some point about like an idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that because when COVID hit and when we were sitting at home, just being, I was bad during COVID because I just, I was just so frustrated. Like I'm surprised that <clears throat> my fiance is still with me, to be honest, <laughs> because I was just like, she was like, oh, it's great. All this time off. And I was there just kind of screwing because I had a private practice that, was getting no money or no help from anyone. You're getting no help from the government, really. Um, I guess you, you know we could furlough some staff, but you st- we still paid them 100%. So you still got all these bills coming out and nothing coming in. So you're like, shit, when's this, uh, this going to stop? But then Mark actually, he gave me like a WhatsApp. Because everyone's sitting at home just thinking about different ideas and people's perspective on life like changed during that time a little bit so he sent me over a whatsapp and then we just started going getting like talking and then it was when you know when you could start to see other people Mm. i went around his house and he kind of gave me like this little presentation initially it was an idea that maybe we would go and um buy some practices and then try to convert them into what we wanted them to be 
But then once we started going down that route of looking at buying practices, we were actually like, well, look, why don't we just go the way where we start with a squat practice and then um, see what happens there. And yeah, and then, and that just led to the, the good thing was because the COVID situation, we actually find a pretty good deal on our lease because everywhere was, everyone's panicking. Loads of shops were coming up to rent. So we actually found something and managed to sign a good lease during that time. The tricky thing was <clears throat> the whole ventilation situation. Mm. Like, cause you know, the guidance was like, I found very unclear, you know, about all the air changes per hour, blah, blah, blah. And then, so when we were building this new clinic, we were like, what level of ventilation do you go to? And we ended up just kitting it out with like the best like HVAC systems that do 12 air changes per hour, like all the time. Um, but all these things just add a huge expense. That's like a 70 grand bill just added to the build in the first place, just for the ventilation systems. But we were like, look, we might as well do it to the top spec first in case this stays like this forever. And, you know, when you think about it, actually having fresh air in each room is kind of, it just, obviously it just makes sense. Like mm-hmm. before, I think no wonder dental practices smell of dental practices because you're just like bleaching them the whole time. And it's like, actually, yeah, there's probably quite a lot of tooth dust in the air here. So <laughs> that's probably a, probably a blessing. Um, and then, yeah, just, just went along with it. And I kind of, it was, it got, that was probably my where if I could ever look back at my life and think about any peaks of anxiety, that was a moment of it because of the huge investment that we needed to make in it. And then what I was going to have to do at the time was put Ridgeway, my Wimbledon practice into the pot because we were initially thinking about buying a few practices and I was thinking, you know, what happens if we suddenly buy a few practices it doesn't work out how we want it to because this guy Mark knows nothing, really nothing about dentistry, uh, and was, and then what happens if I lose everything? I lose the Wimbledon practice, but then mainly your reputation because if I go and buy a few practices, it all screws up, and then suddenly you've got three practices worth of staff that are out of a job. You know you're not going to be making many people uh, happy in that situation. Um, so that was a bit stressful but um yeah it's all going all right it sounds stressful even thinking about <clears> it but you know the good news is it it went very well and you opened the third one <laughs> thank you getting there getting there i think i read an article on uh somewhere about you opening up the second practice yeah and you said that there was a huge investment that went into it including yeah. you know marketing you put something huge i can't remember the exact number but it was yeah. huge yeah for marketing yeah was that worth it and did it give you the return i mean on the second practice it's a very good question i think that looking back our second practice so so the first squat practice fulham Mm. um we probably overspent a bit on the build of that because we were like a little flagship we went for really nice finishing um when you do the marketing it's you don't re sometimes you don't really know what's going to work in terms of marketing um and you've got to try all these different things and measure how much they're working so you've got to try something for a certain time before you know it works and once you kind of get that system up you can refine it and it actually takes less money to start to get the mm-hmm. same result basically 
Uh, and you've got to be very careful with the people that you, we actually, we hired like this marketing guy, Simon, um, who's been amazing. He had his own company, but it's actually got to the point where a year in, we were like, look, we kind of, this is such an important role for us. He's just got rid of his company now and just completely works for us. And now he's our chief marketing officer for our um, our company now. Um, but it's very important. It's like you can have these really, really romantic ideas. Or so it's Wimbledon was that's that was pretty much completely organic growth hmm. uh, in the fact that you know get your good reputation and then people will start coming in. But the growth organically is going to be a lot slower right because it, it just it just takes a while um whereas once you get a good website in terms of like seo perspective it it does it is as simple as when people type in you know fulham dentist or whatever it is and you come up near the top of the list they're going to click on you and hopefully book an appointment um, but you need to spend quite a bit of time and money into getting to that point. Um, and it just it depends how quickly you want to do it. You know, you don't need to spend that much on the marketing, but how many patients are going to be coming through the door? It's uh, there is quite the correlation to mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. But now that my Fulham website is is good and performing well, and we get we've got a lot of new patients coming through the door. Um, it means that I can focus on the Wandsworth place and Fulham. We don't need to actually, that's kind of, we need to make it tick along, but we don't need to spend that initial investment of building up now. That's kind of done. Mm -hmm. Um, so we can focus that elsewhere. So from your point of view, I guess you have a very good experience of both now squat practice and existing practices. If you were to give advice to those who are considering practice ownership, what would you say uh, the pros and cons of each process? I know you can't exactly say which one's yeah. best because they both have their merits. Um, <laughs> but what have you found is the main difference between the two if someone wants to do it? I, I love the fact that when you build a squat practice, you can build it exactly how you want it to be with like a vision in mind. And if you go into a practice and it kind of looks and feels really nice and the equipment's all great and it you know with something just looks new mm. it's, it just looks better you're not I don't think you're really there aren't many practices that you could buy that will be like that mm. because when you build a squat practice brand new you can have that finish that just first of all looks really nice and feels really nice I'm not saying that you don't have that in other practices though and in terms of your kind the values of the staff that work there, because you get to basically select the you know front of house, your management, your nurses, your dentists, you can be very picky over who comes in and what you build. Whereas when you go and buy a practice to start to change automatically, you're kind of the bad guy when you buy a practice because the staff are going to be, no, well, we do it this way already. And they're going to kind of hate you a little bit when you start to change the processes that are in place. And <clears throat> no doubt you're going to end up losing staff throughout the way and then try to find other staff. Mm-hmm. And also the other thing, it's the kind of patient mantra as well. Like Wimbledon, we've had that going for so long now that, you know, if you change the hygiene price by a five quid or something like that, on or, or try to say, look, actually, we need you to come in for 45 minutes now instead of half an hour. They're like, what? But I've always done this. Mm. So when you open a squat practice, you could say like, well, no, we don't do hygiene for less than 45 minutes. Or do you know, that's just like mm. a mm. small example, right? Um, 
so you can actually like I, I get a lot of enjoyment in in growing that practice designing it how we want to uh with a vision in mind of what we want it to be um but there's like an exhaustive list of stuff to do when you build that practice like all the cqc stuff you know the the build the it the engineering the airflow the there's just a a huge amount of stuff to do it so you have to be on it i personally again am so thankful for my partners and uh when we built the squat for mark because and my practice manager comedia because um they smashed it and they helped a lot but to do it by yourself is a huge undertaking and it's nice having a partner sometimes because you have that reassurance where you make a decision. You're like, let's just go with it. It'd be fine. You kind of like pat yourself on the back. And, yes. Okay. Um, but if that's by yourself, you're probably like, uh, I don't know. Like you just think too much about the, um, yeah. the decisions. Right. But, but the problems come with finances because mm-hmm. if you, decided that you just wanted to go and build a squat practice how are you going to pay for that right because looking at the build cost of a clinic it could be you know if you want to have a big practice where you're looking at kind of four or five surgeries i think you'll be lucky to get away with spending anything less than 500 grand and it could be up to like a million right um so that money you have to have you're not going to get a, lo- a huge loan from a bank because there's no business performance before it. So you've got nothing to say, well, I know it's going to work. So they're, so they're not going to take the risk of lending you that money. Mm-hmm. So what you're going to have to do is find a lot of money in the first place. Yeah. You can get uh, like interest-free loans for equipment and stuff like that, but you're still going to have to have a huge amount of money to pay for it. So where's that come from? So that might be parents investment. It might be that you found a investor that could give you like an interest-free loan it, or, or something like that, right? It might need to be that you remortgage your house, but that's a huge amount of money that you've got to start with. But then it's not just the actual build. You've got to look like, when is this thing going to start making money? And if you start making money before two, three years, you've probably done bloody well for yourself. So during that two or three years, when you're losing money every month to pay to open the clinic, again, you've got to really cater for that and you've got to have a plan for it and if you want to put marketing in if you want to do this it's just an endless pit of money that that goes out so you probably have to have money coming in from somewhere else so the reason that I could do a squat practice was because Ridgeway my Wimbledon practice was starting to do um make a profit so the profits from that I could then take and put it into the next practice to to kind of keep it keep it going mm-hmm. um Whereas if you buy a clinic, like say for since it's my first one, like Wimbledon, that is going already, you've kind of, you're going to be losing less money at the beginning because if you've taken a loan to buy that clinic, as long as you can service that loan, as long as the clinic's kind of making enough money that you can pay that loan back and, you you know, it's going to be an easier ride into it. But, you know, buying a clinic is that some of these things are valued so high. Exactly, yeah. That, yeah, that I think that my idea, if you can make the squat thing work, then that's that's a cool thing, right? Because 
say if your practice is worth in a few mil in a, a certain amount of years, then you know you made a lot of money through that. Whereas chain, if you buy a practice that's worth like three mil, then making that like six mil is probably harder. It's it's uh I I think you'll get more value out of selling it at the end if you've got mm-hmm. got the squat basically. Um that's the thing. Like when I look at practices that are available to buy. First of all, they're so they're valued so highly. And when you yeah. look at it, there's no guarantee. I guess there is that sense of security that you already have an existing list and there's going to be money coming in every month. But yeah. you actually don't know how many of those patients you're going to retain, you know. No, no idea. You you have no idea. And that's why when you you ha- you have to look at it very carefully. And like if you're buying a practice, who's making is that is that principal led or is it associate led? I.e., is there one like woman or one guy that's the lead role there that takes 90% of the yeah. takings and suddenly if they bugger off once you once you buy the practice you're probably screwed because all those patients aren't going to come and see you and get on with you straight away and you've paid that premium for that income that they've generated nothing else yeah yeah exactly so suddenly you could be buying a practice for like one and a half mil that's actually once they go you look at it without their income it's worth like nothing exactly uh, whereas if it's all like associate led uh, and lots of different people are making the money that's you know probably a better practice a safer bet to go for unless the principal is going to stay on for three years once you buy it off of them um and you can put that into their contracts and make sure that <clears throat> they um you know you might buy the practice for like 70 percent of what it's worth but then at the end of three years if they've still made that money for the next years give them the extra 30 percent or something like that mm-hmm. so i guess it's a very personal decision about people's circumstances to consider there's pros and cons for both yeah, yeah. Um, it, i think that to build a squat and just go squat number one it, as your first practice is going to be a huge challenge because it's not just where that money comes from to build it but also while it's open how are you funding that and also how are you to getting any money like do you have are you going to do two days there and do three days at another clinic that you already work in who's going to staff it on the other days um and you know it's just expensive and then when you grow you think well no, actually i need another nurse now i think you know, that's another wage or actually I can see myself getting busier in two months. So I might need another nurse on that. And mm-hmm. staffing and recruitment is very tough at the moment as well. Mm-hmm. Speaking of recruitment, I see your posts all the time about coming in and apply for jobs now for this practice and that practice. And I know yeah. that you're, you have a heavy emphasis on excellent clinical dentistry. Yeah. How do you recruit associates and for people considering getting jobs? So you say they don't want to buy a practice. They just want to be a really, really good associate. Yeah. Not just, but they want to be a really, really good associate. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. What would you give them as advice of what to do to make sure they are suitable for these? Because, you know, your practices are all super high end, private, excellent clinical dentistry, high end yeah. patients with high expectations, I assume. Yeah. Um, so how do you prepare for that kind of role as an associate? This, yeah, that's, these are all like really, really great questions. Great. Thank podcast. you so much. <laughs> um, yeah. That's, you know, anyone like coming out of uni or even not coming out of uni, if you want to like change your practice and start doing that type of dentistry or have a role in a practice like that, there's a huge investment in yourself 
And, you know, when I came out of uni, there were a lot of people in, I actually think that the NHS practices, NHS practice was a great place for me. And I think it's a great place for a lot of people for X number of years to refine your skills. And you just have to accept you're not going to be earning much money, but you're going to learn what caries is. You're going to learn what works. You're going to learn how to communicate with patients. You're going to learn how to stage treatments. You're going to learn how to treatment plan. Um, So, because it's almost like an, an ethical training ground, I think, because when you're just knocking out fillings, 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 you're going to get better at at doing fillings. Right. Um, I think that, as soon as you can just start taking photos of your own work, do a good photography course, get a good camera uh, and start taking photos of like, you know, at least one case a day, then start reflecting on them and putting them on your computer to look at those photos. But don't just take like a before and after, take the process of it, take the rubber dam, take the caries removal, take the matrix, take after, because there'll be something that you see that you will see consistently that you're doing wrong. And then you'll be like, oh, how do I fix that? And you work out how to fix that. And I, like my identity, I only started taking photos when I was properly taking photos, really when I started the whole Instagram thing. And I think in the space of like two years after starting my Instagram, my dentistry probably excelled at like a huge rate more than they had the previous years because you know i was putting these photos up looking at them thinking oh actually that's a bit crap i need to get better at that so i think photos is a huge thing it's investing in courses and you know people will message me and be like oh what's a good composite bonding course what's a good endo course what's a good this and it's like you're not going to learn everything on one course Mm. but you will learn something on every course so just make it a thing that you just go on courses every few months or something and even like a one-day course you can learn there are some amazing courses out there where you can learn so much in a day or two that you know sometimes you might not even pick up on a master's degree so it's good to do just as many of these things as you can it's accepting as well that you're going to spend those years where, you know, I had had friends working at the NHS where they're making huge amount more money than I am because they were just bashing the Nash and getting these UDAs out uh, and just smashing it. Whereas I'll be doing like three endos on a patient on one course of treatment. And you think bloody hell, I should just be working at like Costa Coffee at the moment rather than (laughs) here. But, you know, with that experience, you start to learn what works in your hands um and so then eventually when you do go to the route where you do your you know private dentistry you can charge more and uh but it's it's justified because you you know hopefully the work stays there for for a a lot longer um and you know you're going to need to invest in equipment it's you're going to need to it's it, it takes time, but but the problem is, is I think a lot of people rush when they come out of uni. Mm-hmm. And I think that again, social media is probably not helping that because everyone comes out, they're like, oh, look at that guy who just does like veneers all the time. That's what I want to do or that. Whereas actually, you know, you kind of need to learn how to treat caries or use a rubber dam before that because, because, because it's, you know, how many people are actually posting work on Instagram? It's probably like 1% of dentists or something. So everything that dentists see on Instagram, mm-hmm. they think that's what dentistry is. 
Whereas it's not. There's a lot of people placing amalgam. There's a lot of people stabilizing decay and taking teeth out and putting dentures in. But that's not the sexy stuff you see on Instagram. So everyone thinks that that's kind of what they want to do. Yeah, I think Instagram definitely. I mean, I love it, obviously, as we all know. But I think it gives a very skewed perception of the profession. And if you're just 100%. coming out of dental school, that can be quite dangerous. I mean, very I didn't have this. Well. We didn't have this when we just qualified. So there wasn't that obvious yeah. comparison with other dentists. And obviously, you don't see people's background. You don't know how many years of practice, how many hundreds of thousands of pounds yeah. they've invested in exactly. courses. Yeah, yeah. And when you look at all the people on Instagram, that all the big names that people follow, I'm like if you actually know that person and you speak to them, you will realize how much time and effort they have put to get to where they are. And it's not just all, it's not given to them and it's not all luck. They have put in so much work mm. to get to where they are. And it's not like an easy, an easy ride. Um, and it's not necessarily something that you see. Like I remember I put something up about my doing my diploma and you messaged me and you were like, that takes a lot of time when I did mine. It took yeah, hours and exactly, hours. Yeah. It takes so I, many hours. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, actually that was Christmas for me one year. Yeah. Just, you know what I mean? Like, oh, I'm really looking forward to this week off. And like, actually I'm just putting like 10 cases <laughs> together with that much detail. And you are like, pe- people don't, you don't see that and like that's what no one sees that dissertation that you've written no one sees those millions of essays and millions of cases that you've like sent in and spent the time making no money doing because you a lot of the time you've done it for like a bit cheaper for the patient or whatever to learn Mm. Um, and also a lot of the time investing money paying to do it like the courses that you do people don't realize how much you actually have to invest to begin with in the equipment, you know, loops. I recently got new loops and it was really painful. I could have had a very, very nice bag instead, but I decided to get the loops instead, but you have to make those sacrifices. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly. And it's not all, uh, I mean, but hopefully it's all for the greater good. So when you're at a point where you can just take a step back and you've done those investments and it's, uh, and it's worth it but it's it's hard work it's it's a lot of time it's a lot of money it's it, it takes time speaking of social media you're mm-hmm. obviously very famous on social media and i genuinely can't stop calling you george the dentist it, i have to put effort into calling that's, you george that is, that is, that's my name now <laughs> that is, that is. through your social media journey where did it all start yeah so what was that i don't know it was that like six seven years ago or something like that um I don't it was you know what it was that's I actually have Aaron my practice partner from Wimbledon to thank for that because he was I remember I was like driving one day and I got a call on hands free and he was like you know I think you should start doing Instagram so I was like <laughs> okay and I was like I thought about it before it's like yeah because you know it's going to be good for bringing patients into the practice right so I was like, okay, well, fine. And then like, I literally remember when we were like driving, I was like, well, what should we call it? Or what should it be called? <laughs> and they were like, dentist, George. And Aaron, I think it was actually Aaron's idea. He was like, well, why not just like George the dentist? <laughs> I was like, perfect. <laughs> Great. So just started that up and then just started like posting stuff. And the way that mine was not the... Mine was, I basically very quickly realized I didn't really like posting the kind of boring patient stuff, which mm. is like 
a before and after of a patient smiling or, you know, a patient looking in the mirror. I find that I found that all a bit cringe. And I was like, I actually liked posting the stuff on like restorative dentistry, like a bit of blood. That's how I get over this problem. That's how I get over this problem. And then I found that, uh, but doing it with a mix of stuff for patients as well, of like before and afters and stuff. Whereas a lot of other people were a bit more patient focused at the time. And I found that a lot of the people who started following me were in the dental industry. So they were like dentists or nurses or companies and stuff like that. Um, and it was bringing uh, patients through the door as well. And then it just kind of just grew from there. And it actually, it gave me a bit more of a passion for dentistry because I started taking photos a lot more, I upgraded my camera. I was like, when I take photos of work and I look at them after, I'm like, I actually really enjoyed today. That was cool. But when I don't use my camera for like two or three weeks, because I'm in a rush or whatever, I'm like, I, I find myself enjoying things less. Mm -hmm. So it actually helped me start to enjoy the job um, more. And then it just carry, carried on. And I don't like, I just started to be, I don't post loads, but I, I'm pretty consistent. I put like stories up quite a lot. It's not, I don't put my best work up. I just put the day-to-day -day work up. And I think that people appreciate that because they realize that not everyone's like Superman, right? Like you see some of these people where their cases, everything is unbelievable, but the majority of people aren't like that. We're just normal. So when you can see the processes, just the step-by-step -step things mm. and see that the dam's torn a little bit or seen that actually something chipped at some point or whatever, or a little margin, you know, it's that's routine stuff that people I found wanted to see. And then it, once you get that following, I don't know, lots of, I, I do get now get a lot of patients through it as well. But the main thing, the, the big thing for me, you know, I would give up the patients tomorrow that come through the door because of Instagram uh because the practices are doing well now anyway the main thing for me that it helps with is recruitment um and because you're just so in front of such a huge network now of dentists a lot of people that post their work that's like pretty good on there uh i'm like you know you get talking to and then sometimes they end up working in your practice or i put adverts up on my stories being like need an orthodontist need a restorative dentist blah 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 and then someone to see it and then get in touch and then back to the original question of how someone's going to start to get into that role there it's basically building up your portfolio mm -hmm. and that like, i can get say if i apply for an associate i might get 100 cvs um a CV I don't think is worth that much. And I do read CVs, but look, you've done a course or you've done this. That doesn't mean that actually you have practiced what you learned on that course on patients before. I need to see that. So I want to see a portfolio that is re very relevant for the job that they are applying for, e.g., if it's a general dentist I'm, I'm looking for, you know, I want to see how you manage caries. I want to see the step-by-step from step one to you know step 10 on how you've placed the composite um and i don't just want to see that one composite that i've seen on instagram that you've done as well because is that the one composite that you've done that well mm -hmm. um and see the process of like doing a crown prep or see the process of doing an on day 
I don't just want to see like before and afters of lip fillers and Invisalign treatments because you're looking to be a general dentist. So actually apply your portfolio to the role that <clears throat> that you're applying for, basically. Well, por- portfolio is a very big thing in my recruitment process. Mm-hmm. I think that's really good advice. It just basically means that you need to showcase your work because I agree with you. I think CVs could say all sorts of things, but there's no way of knowing if that's true or if you're going to be suitable for the role and ultimately I guess with these practices you're trying to instill a certain way of thinking a certain standard of care that you want to be consistent across all practices so it's important to have people with the same mindset (laughs) yeah I uh but also when you send your portfolio be real on it as well there was one portfolio that I received when we were looking for a job at Fulham Road from um someone that I was like when I read the CV, they had only been out of uni for like a couple of years. I looked at this work and I was like, fuck. I was like, that work is like incredible. I was like, either I need this person to work with me <laughs> or they're like lying. So then I started like asking questions and going like deep into it. And then it said that they worked at one practice. So one of my other associates, I'd show my associates this work, rang the practice and like he was like, oh, you know, I will only want to see a female dentist there. And they were like, oh, well, we don't have a female dentist. It was a girl who had applied this. So I was like, well, hang on, that's weird because she said. And then my other associate reverse searched some images in Google that she had put on there and then found it on another Instagram account. Oh, and I was like, that's like that. It's like a kind of GDC hearing. I was like, someone has to be very oh. careful not to do that because you'll get yourself in trouble. So oh, wow. that's so, some very impressive detective work happening at your end. I have to thank my uh, so never, so never lie to George the dentist. Let this be a lesson. <laughs> yeah, I will find you. <laughs> thank you so much, George. I think honestly, I could go on for hours asking you about your life experiences because you have so much wisdom to, to give yeah. to others. But thank you so much for finally making the time. There's so much that we can all learn from you. And thank you for sharing your experience. No, it's a pleasure. I just want to say one more thing, by the way. I think that we can put so much pressure on ourselves in dentistry and things go wrong for everyone. Everyone's kind of day-to-day work is not like pulps get exposed. Patients will always be pissed off in one form or another. You're not going to please every single patient. And there are going to be people, people that actually just don't like you and kind of I think that it's important that especially the younger dentists don't get stressed out for these things or put um, goals that are too high upon themselves because it's that kind of Instagram life is not everyone's uh, life. So everything's aren't perfect. So just don't stress about these things too much, which is super easy to do. But I think that we all have it, basically. We do. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. That's so so refreshing to see someone like you sharing that, that there are downsides to it as well. And I think I agree with social media. You can see a very highlighted, edited version of someone's life, work, career. And it's yeah. not like that, even for super successful high, high achievers like yourself. Um, so that's nice to share. Thank you so much. Speak to you soon. really hope you've enjoyed this episode and hopefully learned a few things I know I certainly did 
and as always don't forget to let me know what you thought of this episode you can reach out to me on instagram at dr shadi manicherry i always love hearing your responses and if you have any requests for future podcast episodes please let me know there i do usually listen if there are specific requests that are quite popular as always there will be a new episode every week so please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and never miss an episode and i can't wait to speak to you soon Thank you.